Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Gnosticism goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel and the mystery religions propagated by Nimrod and his wife. Now, the one major benefit they had going for them, if not two, at the time was that everyone on earth spoke only one language, and I'm guessing it was Hebrew, but I have no proof of that. The other asset that they had going for them was that everyone on earth then lived in essentially one place on the plain of Shinar, which is where Nimrod began to build his stairway to heaven known as the Tower of Babel. The term Gnostic is derived from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. Gnosticism was not a coherent or uniform set of beliefs. Indeed, the term is so hard to define that many contemporary scholars no longer find it useful. Yet the church fathers definitely referred to a set of opponents who emphasized a knowledge-based path to salvation. Now, apparently this way of characterizing their adversaries made good sense to them. Therefore, while acknowledging that Gnosticism must be a broad umbrella term, we can still use it to describe an array of ancient movements that shared many common tendencies and features. And at least some of those features were on display in the Antiochene religious environment of Ignatius's day. And that's a quote from Ken Johnson from Bible Facts. And I have that linked in the transcript. Now, Gnosticism describes numerous paths allegedly designed to lead the officiant to God via secret knowledge as opposed to works. Gnosis, or knowledge, has been transformed so that today it often means secret knowledge that a person might come to possess through a greater awareness of the spiritual realm and the quote-unquote ascended masters, aka demons, who exist there and do their best to try to reach into this realm to people with open hearts and minds and who are agreeable to what they teach. Now, the sad part of this is that regardless of the particular bent of the particular ascended master or demon, it ultimately can all be distilled down to similar goals such as these. God is within you. You are God. You must increase your divinity through knowledge to become fully God. Gaia, Mother Earth, is to be worshipped and honored. The Bible has been seriously misunderstood, taken out of context, and Jesus is not the God, but merely a God or one of the ascended masters in the complete spiritual hierarchy, etc. So whether it's referred to directly as Gnosticism or something else like spiritual enlightenment or New Age thought, the goal remains the same, entrapment and failure of people. It's the exact same goal Satan had in mind and used to tempt even Adam, in their fall, and unfortunately it worked. It remains Satan's best approach in attempting to gain control over human beings and ultimately all of humanity, teasing us into thinking that we are gods. Now, if we consider the controllists who, because of their seeming endless wealth, are able to exercise increasing control over global society, it is clear they believe they are gods put here to rule the world. Satan has blinded their thinking. This causes them to believe they're gods and that he, Satan, though they call him Lucifer, is their guiding light to truth, freedom, and ultimately 
eternal life. Because of this and the fact that they embrace these lies, they're more than willing to do his bidding, which even includes depopulation schemes. Working with Satan pays big dividends in this life, but that's where it ends. Gnosticism ultimately leads to eternal destruction, but because it caters to the insatiable desires of our fallen nature, it appears good to most people, intellectual, making it easy to follow. No sacrifice is necessary for the human being who enters that path. Only promises of reward in this life are offered. Interestingly enough, when those promises don't come to fruition, it's interesting how the person will often blame themselves for their own failures, and then they will endeavor to attack the problem with greater resolve and strength and commitment. Contrast that with the average Christian, though, who, when not receiving the response they wish to get from God after prayer, often does what? Blame God. Have you done that? I have, and I admit that to my chagrin. Gnosticism asserts self, glorifying its demands and desires. God expects us to deny self, pick up that cross, and follow him regardless of outcomes. Now, of course, this is why Gnosticism is so mightily acceptable and embraceable to most people today. It can be done without having to worry about the one and only God Almighty. It's a shortcut that thinks it ends in eternal life but ends in absolute eternal destruction. It is as true today as it was true in the days of the early fathers. Here's another quote from Ken Johnson. Uh, I apologize. This is actually a gentleman by the name of Brian Lifton from his book, Getting to Know the Church Fathers. So here is another quote from him. The evidence from the ancient Christian writers suggests that Gnosticizing doctrines were being vigorously propagated in Ignatius's Antioch by credible teachers. If left unchecked, this movement could develop into the fully developed sects that we find later in the second century. Gnosticism, in all its forms, present a clear and present danger to the apostolic Christian." Unquote. Now, Ignatius was already sentenced to death at this point. He was simply waiting for his execution. Yet he continued to do battle against Satan's Gnosticism, which was beginning to hold sway in churches pastored by Bishop Ignatius. Here's another quote. On one hand, overly zealous Jewish Christians were calling for adherence to the law of Moses for salvation. On the other hand, the Docetists denied the reality of the Incarnation and advocated a Christianity that took the focus away from the cross and the empty tomb. And in between them was Ignatius, snatched from his congregation by pagan authorities and headed for an ignominious defeat through public execution. Unless, perhaps, there might be a hidden opportunity here? Well, Ignatius apparently thought so. He had resolved to make his death count for eternity, unquote. Now, in spite of some of the best efforts of the early church fathers, this world continues to deal with all forms of Gnosticism with many names. The extra-biblical third letter to the Corinthians warns of a resurgence of Gnosticism at the end of the, this age of grace. The early church fathers write of the many Gnostic influences they had to deal with during their day, during the first and second centuries. However, in today's world, we don't call it Gnosticism. This broad term encompasses many different branches 
of thought, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, or any cults recognized even as being part of visible Christianity like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventism, etc. And of course, the New Age with all its offshoots and ascended masters, aka demons, and many others. It's clear that many forms of Gnosticism have forced its way into the visible church. With New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, the latest version of the charismatic movement, leading the way in many congregations today. Too many Christians seem unaware of these problems, even in their own churches. And the best thing to do if this becomes the state in your church is probably considered leaving to find another more biblically attuned body of believers. I can almost guarantee, unless God intervenes, that your presence would have no effect on changing that church. In the case of Ignatius and the churches in Antioch during his day, apparently the main issue was over Christology. As noted, there were two factions which created the rift, those who wanted to push the law of Moses, Christ was not enough for them, and those who pushed a more human Jesus and downplayed his deity, so he wasn't God enough. The later did so because of the Greek influence of the time that leaned toward Gnosticism and higher thought. Without realizing it, both groups downplayed Christ's deity by emphasizing the person's need to pursue works. This is the very heart of Gnosticism, as it constantly, in all its forms, defines a path of salvation that includes either works, knowledge, or both. While setting aside faith in Christ alone for his completed work on Calvary's cross in full payment, propitiation for our sin and failure. In the end, it leads to complete destruction apart from God, eternally, not eternal life. But because this aspect of Gnosticism is somewhat difficult for the average person to see, those involved in it fail to understand that they have actually denied the very Savior whom they say they worship. Jesus is fully God and fully man, having both natures. The life he lived as a human being was a model for the way that we should live but have no capacity to do so, no matter how much secret gnosis we gain. It comes only by submitting to him at every turn, just as he submitted to the Father at every turn. And in this way, we gain power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome through our faith in him. The purpose of Jesus' life was to save and set the prisoner free. That's you and me. He needs nothing from us except our full devotion to him and his will after we embrace salvation. Though we should certainly endeavor to submit to him and live his will consistently or not prior to our physical death, our failure to live perfectly does not diminish our salvation. We remain saved all because of him and his ability to keep us in that saved state. The reason we seek to follow his will in all things is due, hopefully, to a growing love for him and a greater appreciation for what he has accomplished for us. Something we have zero capacity to do. Anything less than this is purely legalistic. So let's also recall that both Docetists and Gnostics had a seriously wrong view of Jesus's physical body. 
They actually believed he did not have a human body, which of course set them at odds with those who were pushing for more obedience to the Mosaic law, as well as those in the church who clearly believed Jesus was human in every way. But the Docetists and the Gnostics, who did not believe Jesus was truly human, were then able to disregard what he accomplished in this life, including his death for our sin. These individuals were bothered by that, and so disregarded and ignored it. Here's another quote. Jesus was instead a revealer of mystical sayings about the supernatural realm. That's what they thought. The divine res geste was meaningless for them. God's actions in history counted for nothing. Both Christological errors had harmful consequences. They located salvation somewhere other than the cross. And so the immature believers were caught in the middle, pulled this way by legalists and that way by docetists. The church in Antioch lacked the unity that comes from a true understanding of who Christ really was and what he accomplished. In trying to a solution, trying to find a solution to this pastoral dilemma, Ignatius went to the Bible. In particular, in particular, he went to the writings and theology of the Apostle Paul, unquote. And it's amazing to me that error, once gaining access inside the visible church by Satan and his fallen angels, never ends up being truly eliminated. Jesus himself warned us of this problem in his parable of the wheat and the tares planted together in the same field, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. The landowner, God, had his servants plant the wheat. Satan then came along with his servants and planted tares. Well, after discovering the problem, the servants came to the landowner and asked him if they should pull up the tares. And the landowner said not to, but to wait until the harvest. Why? Well, because when tares are fully grown, the difference between the tares and the wheat would be starkly obvious. And as such, there would be no danger of accidentally pulling up the wheat with the tares. Obviously, this will not take place until the judgment, when the harvest happens, but it will take place. In the meantime, our job is to know and understand the truth of God's word, which takes effort on our part. We need to, quote, be diligent to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Without consistently doing this, we might have salvation, but we have no means or little means of standing against the many errors that Satan uses to infiltrate our lives and infiltrate and take over churches in his calculated, though limited, attempts to keep people from receiving eternal life. Thanks for joining me today. And again, the quotes are from a book called Getting to Know the Church Fathers by Brian M. Lifton, and they are listed in the transcript. Thanks so much for joining me. And until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 